CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been 40 years now, and Fangoria is better than ever, each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head to Fangoria.com to learn more and to, well, subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code POSTMORTEM to save 15% off your subscription. That's Fangoria.com, promo code POSTMORTEM to save 15%. Jump into the feeding frenzy and buy Crawl today on Blu-ray and digital. Producer Sam Raimi, the horror mastermind behind Don't Breathe and the Evil Dead movies, teams up with director and friend of the podcast Alexandra Aja of The Hills Have Eyes to bring you this year's most intense horror film. Certified fresh by Rotten Tomatoes, sink your teeth into over 45 minutes of terrifying bonus content, including an all-new motion comic of the film's alternate opening. You'll never want to get back in the water again. Get Crawl today on Blu-ray and digital, rated R from Paramount Pictures. Well, I just want to take this opportunity to let you know that there's a special going on on Apple Movies, and our film, Nightmare Cinema, is available for rental for only 99 cents on Apple Music from now all the way through Halloween. So if you haven't seen it, check it out, and if you have, check it out again. Out now on Blu-ray and DVD, friend of the podcast Mike Flanagan's extended edition of The Haunting of Hill House arrives just in time for Halloween. And our friends at Paramount Home Entertainment are offering post-mortem fans the chance to win two copies. All you have to do is go to at Mick Garris PM on Twitter and Instagram and find the photo of the new Haunting of Hill House Blu-ray and answer the following question. What was the movie that first excited me about the genre when I was a very young child. The answer is in today's show, so listen closely and good luck. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem AMA, the fun size show where you can ask me anything. You send your questions to me at PM on Twitter or Instagram or to Joe Russo Tweets on Twitter, and we will answer your questions. And to ask them of me today is Joe Russo, our producer. Joe, what do you got? Hello, Mick. 
Hello, uh, Joe. So, at FilmGeek99 wants to know, what is your dream franchise to get a chance to work on? I am not a big fan of franchises. I can't think of one that I would want to do. Obviously, if there were a great one that came to me and they asked me to do it, I'd, I'd certainly take that into consideration and probably find a way to justify loving it. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because it wouldn't be the first time you've worked on franchises. No, I mean, my whole career started with a series of movies with numbers in their titles. There was Critters 2 and Fly 2 and Psycho 4 and uh, things like that. So, um, but I think franchises have changed. I think they've become much more corporate Mm-hmm. And much less about continuing the story than continuing the the income. Yeah. And I I can't think of a franchise that it, it would excite me to be a part of at this point. Do you think back in in your earlier filmmaking days that would have been been different? Obviously, it was because you were a part of those. But I mean, right. like when you were you know uh, young and answering phones on Star Wars, did you ever <laughs> think like, oh wow, wouldn't it be cool if to do a Star Wars? Sure. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I didn't even think about it then. Yeah. Uh, at that age, when I was, you know, in my twenties, and, right. and and Star Wars was happening, but um, the franchise is now within the horror genre, which is what we're talking about sure. on this show, sure. and because most of my career has been spent in the horror trenches, um, I can't think of a franchise that would excite me. First of all, as a viewer, and secondly, as a contributor. Yeah. When when you got the opportunity for Psycho 4, yeah. I mean, what there must have been a, a, an array of emotions running through you. I mean, Well, Psycho there was, was a lot of the... stuff running through my mind. Um, but first of all, it was an opportunity to, con- to continue the story. It was written by Joe Stefano, who wrote the script for the original Psycho. So that gave it some sense of honor mm-hmm. in one case. Mm-hmm. Psycho 2 was done uh, well after, you know, a couple sure. of decades after the first one. Right. And it was really good. Yeah. And nobody expected it to be as good as it was. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the iconic status that the original Psycho was, but it was good. Then Psycho 3 came along and it was a not a success critically or in terms of box office. Mm-hmm. But this was an opportunity early in my career to do something that I thought was really great. It was a really good script from Stefano. Was being treated with a lot of respect. A lot of the people who worked on the original Psycho, including Hilton Green, who was Hitchcock's first AD, mm-hmm. was my executive producer on the film. And it was an opportunity to do something really special. It was a prequel, not a sequel. Perkins was involved. Hilton Green was involved. The studio was behind it. And it was made for Showtime when Showtime was a much smaller network. And if it turned out well, then you could say, hey, have you seen Psycho 4? It's on Showtime. You have to seek it out. Um, And it would get a buzz. And if it wasn't good, then it was easy to hide. (laughs) Nobody would have seen it. (laughs) So it turned out to be a huge success for Showtime, but it didn't have to be tested at the box office. So it ended up turning out really well. I got a beautiful letter from Steven Spielberg about uh, how much he liked it and what a good job it was. And so, um, 
you know, it turned out to be the right choice to make. Well, and another Stephen saw it. And, <laughs> yes. Uh, well, uh, Stephen King, that was the movie that convinced him that I was the right guy to direct Sleepwalkers. Uh, lots of mother-son uh, incest <laughs> stuff. I know. Yeah. I always say, don't tell my mom, but she's no longer with us. So, uh, so yeah, but I, I can't imagine something in today's like franchise yeah. climate that would, would thrill me to the point of wanting to jump on board. At Isaac Thorne asks, what are your thoughts on streaming as distribution method versus theatrical and physical? I would always rather see a movie in a theater, but it gives us an opportunity to see things that we wouldn't otherwise get the opportunity to see. These days, motion picture screens are occupied by big budget comic book movies, comedies, you know, high concept um, yeah, the franchises, the aforementioned franchises. Yes, the aforementioned yes. franchises, that's probably 70% of what takes up a theatrical movie screen these days. So it's much, much harder to get more eccentric or iconoclastic or, or unique filmmaking experiences onto the big screen. Even the art house theaters are pretty limited into what they can take on. And certainly within our genre, that's an even bigger problem. So I think the streaming opportunities are really good for us, whether it's VOD or it's Netflix or it's Hulu or it's Amazon. The more platforms that exist for us to seek out our entertainment, the better it is for the maker as well as the consumer. Mm -hmm. So I think it's great that these opportunities exist. You know, it wasn't that long ago when we only had commercial television to offer us anything outside of the theatrical experience. Yeah. Commercial television, by its definition, is supported by advertising, so you had to water down to appeal to the least common denominator in terms of your audience. You did not go for a sophisticated audience. Pay TV came in, HBO was able to capitalize upon that and make programming that appealed to us, that gave us Tales from the Crypt, uncensored horror stories that would come out in that way. The other pay TV networks have followed suit. And now with the streaming platforms offering those opportunities, I think it's great. Given the choice, I'd much rather see a movie in a theater. Yeah. But I've turned my own living room into my own personal theater so I can bring it as much to the theatrical uh, experience as I can personally and and try and recreate that. And the opportunity to make a theater in your own home is much more affordable than it's ever been. You can get giant screen TVs mm -hmm. for well under $1,000. And it, it's, a, it's a pretty great time for for filmmakers and for audiences. On the other hand, a lot of streaming services offer on-demand movies that filmmakers make no money off of in yeah. that regard. Yeah. So it's been good and bad for the industry. Mostly good, but not so good in the independent world where you know, uh, um, Magnolia Films will pay $50,000 to pick up a movie, and that may be the last you'll see of any income from yeah. it. Yeah, it's it's great in terms of uh, access to content. Right. Uh, maybe not so much in terms of financially making money on that content. Well, the <laughs> the spread between um, independent and studio movie budgets has become so outrageous. You know, 
literally $200 million movies are common on the studio front. Yep. And it has shrunk the independents down to $200,000 budgets. So it, it's quite a dichotomy that reflects very well our society right now. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Um, at Cobnut84 asks, what made you decide to become a screenwriter and director? This is a two-parter. And what drew you into the horror genre? We never really talked about either of these two things. I thought it'd be That's good true. to get into it. So, so let's start with the first one. What made you decide to become a screenwriter and a director? I loved movies and television from the time I was a kid. You know, um, from the very earliest days. Uh, my, I, I watched a lot of cartoons, horror movies, uh, but everything that was out there. There weren't as many channels. There wasn't the panoply of five hundred channels and nothing on when, right. when I was a kid. Um, but, uh, in fact, my grandmother used to call me Michael Allen TV, which, <laughs> which, uh, was, I, I think intended to be insulting and ended up being a career. Um, and, but I started writing short stories when I was 12 years old. Before that, I thought I was going to be an artist. I drew, my father had been a professionally trained artist, schooled artist, and, uh, I followed in his footsteps for a while, but once I started writing at 12, I kind of gave up the drawing and focused on the writing. And I loved doing it. I turned to journalism. I was writing for underground newspapers and things and, and then discovered the arts and was interviewing musicians and later on filmmakers and the like. So after I'd been writing short fiction for a while, I decided to try my hand in screenplays. And I wrote several of them, and I, I found that it was a format I really had um, an affinity for, and I enjoyed doing. And I had had so many movies and TV shows in, in my upbringing and, and all the way through my life that it felt very comfortable for me. So I did that for quite a while before I turned to, uh, before I ever got hired to do it. And that was by Steven Spielberg, who was right. the first guy to hire me to write. Uh, and, I, and that changed the course of my career. And my, now, well, my, while you were writing, did you ever think, man, I'd, I'd like to direct too? Or was it always focused very... Because it sounds like what you just said was very writing-centric. Very writing-centric. But also, when I graduated junior high school, um, my parents gave me an 8mm movie camera. And I started making movies. I didn't know that was called directing, <laughs> right, right, making sure, movies. Sure. It was just like, here's shooting a, a story that I wrote and doing different angles and stuff. I didn't even understand, you know, the impact of close-ups versus master shots and right. movement and right. color and lens. But and it was just choices. innately drawn into you because of how much you watched TV. Right. And, yeah. and then once I started writing screen material, I thought, you know, I, I was a singer in a band at the time. And I thought, okay, the band is going to make it and that's going to allow me to write movies and maybe there'll be an opportunity to direct one. And if that works out, we'll see. But once the band fell apart, the writing did not. I kept going forward on that and kept writing screenplays that nobody saw or certainly nobody bought until that that wonderful day when I found out from... Spielberg that uh, they wanted me to work for them on amazing stories. So when you're writing screenplays, you're directing in your head anyway. Mm -hmm. And it didn't become a formal plan at all 
but I always hoped that maybe this would give me an opportunity. And before I ever planned on being a director, even though I'd had plenty of fantasies about it, was when Stephen came to me and said, I want you to direct an episode for the second season. What do you think about that? And so that was a great opportunity, and, and that led to a career that continues to this day. That's, that's pretty awesome. And so the second part was about horror. Yes. So what led you to the Outray? You know, I always was drawn to it. Uh, the first movie I ever saw as a kid on television that I remember was Son of Kong. And even though it was not horrific, it had a giant uh, stop-motion gorilla in it. And, and I was fascinated by the fantastical. But I also watched all those universal horror classics that were part of the shock theater package back in the day. And I, I think... There's a common bond between a lot of the people who make and consume horror content, and it's that sense of being an outsider. Mm -hmm. You know, my childhood was a pretty fractured one. My parents split up at a fairly early time. Um, brothers and sister were not that close during our upbringing, and the feeling of the outsider and identifying with the monster has a lot to do with it. And not being a popular kid in high school and not really being interested in being a popular kid, being kind of cynical about popularity and and the the social world of school and the hierarchy in social life, I think also makes you turn more towards darker material. And so um, I think all of those things contributed to it, and a lot of people in the genre I've discovered over the years have shared that. Mm -hmm. And the people who create it, a lot of that is... You rarely get people who were the high school drama king right, to, to, right, right. to be doing this. You know, the class, uh, class president is rarely somebody who ends up writing, directing, painting, making music for a living. Do you think that has to do with the, the sensitivities of, of those folks? I would like to think so, yeah. but who knows? I, I I don't want to say that that people outside of the genre don't share those sensitivities, but I I think it is. Well, I don't, I'm not saying that they don't have them, but maybe the folks in the genre are just in tune to them a little bit more. Maybe, maybe that's true. Um, I think creative people tend to also delve into taboo areas that that polite society doesn't. Mm -hmm. And I think playing tag with those fears is something that, that comes out of creative exploration. Yeah. I don't I know. Mean, no, I mean, you know, and, and just in doing postmortem and, and meeting all of the people in the community, it seems to me, and I think you'll agree that a, a lot of the folks in the horror community are some of the most well-adjusted, nice people you'll meet. The best people I know. Yeah. yeah. And and I, sometimes I do mm -hmm. wonder if it's the reason they're able to draw those themes out is because they are so in tune with them and they are so sensitive that they, they almost just purge it cathartically. Could and, be. And, and, and they get it out. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's cathartic. They get it out. The people I worry about are the people who repress. Yeah. And creative people tend to encourage their imagination, whether it's dark or light. And uh, and I think that's an important part of it. I do too. And on that note, I think it's uh, it's time for us to wrap up another AMA. All right, great. That wraps up another postmortem AMA. And thank you, producer Joe. You can ask your questions through Joe Russo tweets on 
Twitter, uh, Mick Garris PM on Twitter and on Instagram. And I look forward to the next one. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Mick. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. This is a brand new address, so don't forget it. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, mickgarrisinterviews.com. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.